How to create a glitch. Retrocausality. This episode is an amalgamation of material on retrocausal events, both documenting them and explaining functionally how they work. Part 1. The direction of causation in the rhythms of the universe is inverted. It flows outward from global to local. The direction of causation within the rhythms or plates is inward, and globalizes experience. Now, if we go back to my writings on the nature of glitches, we see that among the experiences that glitching can produce is the retrocausal event. The question becomes, why would glitching produce such an event? If we think of the example I gave of the students in the classroom, where the teacher uses the allegory of the cup to initiate his discourse, we can see the causal order of events is not the same as the temporal order of events. So, we see that the allegory of the cup initiates the causal chain. This means that ultimately the joining of the students in the location of the classroom is caused by the allegory being understood within their minds. One is a direct consequence of the other. So, all the events which preceded the students gathering their belongings, getting up in the morning, every little detail of their day which allowed him to reach the classroom on time to hear that allegory, must have occurred. This means the buses were on time that morning because of the allegory. This means the students woke up on time for that class because of that allegory. It also means that the direction of causation is not the same as the direction of time. We may think that A precedes B when in fact causally it may follow B. So, earlier in the volumes, when I mentioned retrocausal events, in fact, what I was writing about were retro-temporal not retrocausal. In effect, by elevating your consciousness to the esoteric, your vision is focused on the next step in the causal chain, as opposed to what would ordinarily be the next temporal step in the chain. In this episode I'll be discussing a new way of looking at human behavior while linking the ideas in this podcast to my thoughts about context, gateways and postural releases. I'll start off by indicating that our unconscious movements, behaviors, are entangled in the context in which they occur, which is to say, that when our environment or context repeats we are prone to exhibiting the same unconscious behaviors, each time. This is obvious, and it is trite to say that, but it is what it implies about the reverse that is more important. Specifically, the internal continuity of our thoughts is measured by the degree to which we are entangled in context. So, what is context for these purposes? Context is local. Context is meaningful. Context is the opposite of taking an out. Context is tense. What are the implications of low internal continuity? Low internal continuity is reflective of the degree to which we take outs, that is, the degree to which we allow tension to disperse. So the question becomes, if taking an out produces an objective discontinuity in our thought processes, what does it do to our behaviors? Behaviors replicate in context. So the objective discontinuity results in loosened associations, the incursion of idiosyncratic behaviors, behaviors that should be far displaced in space and time. In effect, the transitional states of our behavior, the corners of our behavior, 
the low continuity moments in our action, represent the points in time when we have taken an out. So, what is an out? An out is any action in a social setting that reduces social tension unnaturally, starting with postural releases, extending to actions such as removing oneself from a situation of tension. More specifically, an out is a moment where our absence is required due to the non-consensual content of an exchange. An out is an escape, a violation, an event where two discordant expectation fields coexist, where individuals can experience parallel but distinct versions of an event. These corners, or outs, have an impact on the internal continuity of our thoughts and thereby produce loosened associations in our thought processes. These loosened associations permit the retrocausal thought or retrotemporal thought. More importantly, these broken or loose associations can create opportunities for transmission of thought telepathically or precognitively. The reason for this is that these corners in our thoughts are plastic. They are also porous. Outs are also a privilege within the system. They are indulgent gestures or habits, which violate some fundamental convention of social behavior. Loosened associations have consequences for a person's internal thought processes. Because they represent the incursion of socially extraneous thoughts or behaviors, and represent a reordering of the causal chain, they also produce poorer recall. Mastery of the shadow parts of one's being brings these shadow parts into one's conscious comprehension, which means that the consensual nature of the exchange will bring out these impulses in the absence of an out. The degree to which we manage our impulses through outs is a reflection of our archetypal status within the system itself. Those without the privilege to use outs, will also lack the ability to refrain from acting out unwanted impulses, because they will extend into the consensual nature of the exchange, as those impulses extend into the light. So what is an out? An out is an esoteric gateway. An out is a doorway. An out is a gateway. Why? Because to the extent that our behaviors are entangled in context, they represent the closing of the gateway, because continuity between our internal states in that specific context and others seems somehow a foregone conclusion. It is only in the loosening of our associations that we are free to access behaviors which may not fit the context, or may be loosely connected to it. In other words loosening one's associations at the corners of one's being, using one's outs, gives one the chance to form gateways with others in different contexts. Thus there are two possible directions to one's experience. In the first, the individual loosens their associations to the extent they can. In this, their behavior becomes increasingly unstable or counterintuitive as their stream of consciousness accepts content which does not fit the context. In the second, the individual strengthens their associations to the extent they can. In this, their behavior becomes increasingly predictable, habitual and certain. Part 2 In this episode, we will be discussing a different form of deference. Specifically, we will be discussing what is called retrograde deference. Deference is a one-directional link between two minds, through which the unconscious decisions of the deferent are shaped and manipulated by the expectations of the person holding deference. Retrograde deference is a subtype of deference that involves the person holding deference projecting those expectations into the past. Retrograde deference suggests that every error that one exhibits was a choice of someone at some future time. In effect, 
Unlike regular deference that moves forward in time, retrograde deference moves backwards in time. Imagine if you were to write an exam, and every mistake you made on that exam was an instruction of someone in the future, given to you without your past knowledge, and blind to the unfortunate consequences of what results. Retrograde deference suggests that we can be influenced retrospectively by those in our futures. Now imagine that every chance meeting is an opportunity for a stranger to give you an instruction on how to make a particular error in your past. The question becomes, why would you allow yourself to be undermined retrospectively by strangers in the pursuit of your goals? And the answer is, because this is not a natural system, it is an engineered system, comprised of actors actively shaping the past while we're living it. The saying from 1984, he who controls the present controls the past, is a description of retrograde deference, a one-way link which for the actor manifests as a retrocausal thought. In effect, we see retrocausal thoughts as glitches, when what they really are is retrocausal corrections satisfying the expectations of the person with social status. In effect, this retrograde deference undermines the success of individuals in achieving their objectives. In this episode we will be discussing how retrocausality is the product of the transition from consensual to non-consensual realities. To begin, typically, to the extent we have control of our bodily integrity and consent, that is we have freedom or autonomy to not consent to an exchange, we exist in a consensual reality. In so existing, there are outs in our behavior which permit folds in time, lost time, to the extent we do not consent. What this means is that our intersection points with others, give them outs, to the extent we do not consent. This manifests as divergent narrative or sequential paths associated with two consciousnesses. In other words, we may experience a five-minute conversation as a consensual reality, but our conversation partner may experience it as a two-minute conversation followed by a pause, during which time they took a 15-minute smoke break and chatted with a colleague or co-worker, before concluding with a three-minute conversation. But we may only remember the five-minute conversation as one sequence. Thus, outs are created by consensual realities, permitting divergence of two streams of consciousness. Now, in addition to producing outs, Consensual realities are comprised of circumscribed behavior, limited to our conscious self-attributions. But consensual realities are also the source of our internal mind, which is created by the non-intersection of our impulses with others' behavior. Thus, folds in time, outs, and the internality of introspection are the product of a consensual reality. Further, the state has the power to impose a non-consensual reality on us, through its agents and their monopoly on force. Their ability to impose this non-consensual reality means that we lose the ability to self-censor our impulses, circumscribe our nature and behavior, and preserve the introspection of our internal mind. What this means is that the non-consensual possess or unfolds time. It eliminates the non-intersection to the extent of the state's willingness to impose force or act against our consent. Thus, time, for non-consensual actors, those privy to the monopoly on force, runs at a different speed than for consensual actors. In the intersection between this consensual space and the non-consensual space of force actors, we see retrocausality. We see this possibility because the mechanism of deference whether normal or retrograde, 
induces behaviors which run contrary to the ordinary arrow of time. Thus, the most common place to experience a retrocausal event is when the consensual is replaced by the non-consensual. In the transition between consensual and non-consensual, the internal becomes external, and the regular becomes retrograde. In effect, deference runs just a little bit faster than the consensual. When there is no enclosure open thoughts pair freely according to attention. When there is enclosure then the internal thought of the closed thinker pairs with the internal thought of the mirroring thinker. Part 3. In this episode, we will be talking about what happens if two consensual realities which are dissonant interact. Now, in previous episodes, we talked about different forms of consensuality and non-consensuality. We discussed how conflicts between consensual realities are becoming increasingly common. What we did not explain is the implications of these interactions. First of all, what is meant by dissonant consensualities? Well, dissonant consensualities are dialectical. In a previous episode, we discussed how thoughts pair. We discussed how polarity is one of the consequences of this. Namely, for every thesis there is an antithesis. Now, when an individual generates a consensual reality which possesses a particular form of dialectical pairing the central set of pairings that define that individual's worldview the system generates dialectical pairings, antithetical pairings in some other actor. When these two actors meet, the result is dissonant consensuality. Dissonant consensuality manifests as the imposition of a non-consensual space upon one of the actors. This non-consensuality, takes the form of both spatial non-consensuality and decontextuality. That is to say, spatially one actor compels the other actor to meet expectations, while generating the deconstruction of their consensuality through contextualization. Effectively, when two dialectical consensualities meet, it commences the dialectical process with respect to one actor causing a non-consensual space. The collapse of a consensual reality its decontextualization, results in an opportunity to expectation match the first, resulting in conjoined consensual spaces. Or, the receding actor, can refuse to expectation match, thereby beginning the process of reconstituting a consensual space. The process of resurrecting a new consensuality involves consensual multicontextuality. That is to say, by abstracting one's experiences, giving multiple meanings to one's contextuality, one re-establishes a consensual framework to work within. The point at which one's consensuality disintegrates and the point at which one's consensuality is resurrected, are joined. This means that they are adjacent temporally, though they need not be spatially. Thus, it is not uncommon for retrocausal thoughts to pass backwards from one to the other. The process of consensual multicontextuality is not linear, but rather extends backwards in time, from the beginning of the consensual resurrection, the point of joining of two disparate realities. These convergences are not mere happenstance. The system inevitably draws together individuals with dialectical pairings. There is an attractive force between individuals with dialectical worldviews and dissonant consensualities. Thus, in the ordinary course, when dealing with open systems, that is, migratory, they will inevitably meet with consequential decontextualization of one over the other. This occurs, 
because the dialectical process of indirect ground continues throughout the system rebirthing entropy and managing the uniformity that we understand to be essential for some degree of objectivity. In this episode, we will be hypothesizing some explanations for how consensual realities could function as non-linear functions given space-time, building upon the last episode. Now, in the last episode we discussed how a consensual reality may contextualize through its interactions with a dissonant consensuality. The general idea was that when two dissonant consensualities converge, the result is the initiation of dialectical degeneration, leading to contextualization of one or the other. The further idea was, that the deconstructed consensuality can resuscitate itself through multi-contextuality. In other words, the individual who loses their consensual reality may revive it through abstraction leading to multi-contextuality. The consequence of this was retrocausal thoughts. This occurs because consensual realities are non-linear, which allows them to be temporally adjacent despite being spatially distant. I am going to be hypothesizing a few possible explanations for these kinds of events. The first explanation is that it is possible for an individual to move in a fifth dimension of space-time. Instead of according to our experience of linear time, the person moves in a new and as yet unknown fifth dimension. Perhaps another yet unknown dimension of time produces the bifurcation of space-time. The next possibility is that the arrow of time can become decoupled from space through some as yet unknown mechanism. In other words, at some points the curvature of space and time is distinct, bifurcated, before reforming into a four-dimensional plane. I can hypothesize a mechanism for this. Since entropy can fluctuate locally, perhaps the arrow of time is not a monolithic thing, a construct of physical constituents of matter and energy. Perhaps since we know that information can fluctuate, measured by entropy, in informational systems, it can produce a distinct curvature of time which somehow dissolves as spacetime resumes its direction. Physicists have always assumed that the arrow of time is constant, that time is a linear function, but what if it fluctuates? Both of these hypotheses are probably wrong, but it is worth thinking about. In this episode, we will be giving one final explanation for how retrocausal chains are created and proposing a governing conclusion about the nature of consciousness itself, while building upon the last two episodes. Nature abhors a vacuum, of that one can be sure, but nature and general relativity are built upon cause and effect. Causality is the underlying principle governing relativity. Thus, what if, causality is the principle that has to be preserved in order for reality to be unitary? What if consciousness experiences reality according to the direction of time, independently of the direction of causality? Let me give you an example. Imagine that one evening before you go to bed the day before taking a driving trip, the word telluride enters your consciousness. At the time you are thinking about something intricate to do with work. Now, what if this word has no causal beginnings? What if it is a piece of information with no causal initiator? Think about that for a second. The word telluride just pops into your head, by itself, for no reason. Flash forward to the next day. You are driving down the highway and in the moment that you begin thinking about work again, some task which requires your full concentration. Imagine, that at that moment, you see a vehicle, a Kia Telluride drive-by. Now, what if, and here is where this becomes a bit of a thought experiment, 
What if the cause of that thought the night before was seeing the vehicle on the road the next day? How would this work? Imagine that both past and future are sequences of parallel infinite realities. Now imagine that as you move forward through time, causality must be preserved. Every thought must have a cause, every action, every occurrence. But what if causality can go backwards in time just as easily as forwards? What if consciousness is causal invariant? What if consciousness always flows in one linear direction of time and causality can go both ways? In other words, the universe abhors a causal vacuum. So as you navigate through all these infinite possibilities forward in time, you automatically switch to one which will provide a cause for the effect of the thought telluride. What I am saying is, what if causality naturally moves in both directions and we navigate the multiverse according to the preservation of causality of either direction? When we experience something that has no cause in our timeline, reality shifts until it does. Does that make sense? Causality is conserved no matter what. What if confirmation bias is a symptom and causal invariance is the cause? That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it, please like, comment, and subscribe. Part 4. In this episode, we will be analyzing the structure of a retrocausal event. In past episodes, we gave examples of a particular kind of retrocausal experience. In this episode, I would like to provide two more examples. And analyze the structure of the experience. For this episode, I will be referring to the experience as a retrocausal thought chain. Such chains are sequential thoughts which begin internally looking and end anchored by some form in the environment. These examples all have a proximate or internal cause and a terminating or anchoring external cause, called the cause in fact. The proximate cause temporally precedes the thought chain, the cause in fact terminates it. For example, one night while conversing with a female friend, you made an offhand comment about how you hope that the situation in Ukraine doesn't lead to nuclear war. The next day, you are driving down the highway when you think of this comment. Your thoughts turn to imagining or visualizing a nuclear war on the horizon, thinking that you are near a big city and would be caught in the midst of it because of your driving trip. These thoughts of nuclear war, your location, Ukraine, And your conversation with the friend all culminate in the moment that a vehicle passes you with the bumper sticker "Ground Zero: A Brand." Now, the proximate cause of these thoughts was the conversation with the friend the night before. This is an internal state which associates the thought with nuclear war. The cause, in fact, was the bumper sticker reading "Ground Zero." In effect, the connection between your thoughts of the night before and the present moment was that bumper sticker. Because the thought chain began with an internal thought, it proceeded to converge in association to the content of the bumper sticker. Essentially, your thoughts leading up to seeing that bumper sticker were causally directed by the content of that external association. This tells us a few things: one, retrocausal chains always have a proximate or ersatz cause. The cause that we tell ourselves was the original temporal cause of the thought chain. Which preserves in us the illusion that the chain is temporally linear, forward in time. Two, that proximate cause will be embedded in past experiences, which are recent and will be associated with another individual. This occurs because thoughts pair, and the proximate cause because its internal must originate with some pairing to another. Three, the actual cause, 
or cause in fact, will be some external form, which gives the chain its causal impetus, its origination, but retro-temporally. Thus, the manner by which we get from the proximate cause to the cause in fact is in accordance with the meaning associated with the external cause. The focus on nuclear war or a location finds its root in the phrase ground zero, which generates the retro-temporal chain leading back to your conversation the night before. Now, when trying to identify a retrocausal thought chain, it is important to be mindful of your thoughts. When a thought from your past comes into your consciousness, such as in the above example, it is important to look for an anchor to that thought, a physical association in the environment that would retro-temporally explain the spontaneous internal thought. In effect, if you learn to think backwards from external causes to internal thoughts in the past, you can perceive a veritable abundance of external retrocausal chains. As a second example, perhaps the first or proximate cause of the thought chain is a memory associated with a colleague from work, female, and a client, or customer. This leads to a thought about a movie character that shares some quality with the customer. Then leads to the idea of a bear. Finally, you see a sign on the side of the highway with a bear on it. The bear is the cause in fact of the thought chain. The memory of the co-worker is the proximate cause. The manner by which your mind goes from the external cause to the internal is tailored to the convergence of the two thoughts according to the associations. In other words, there are two kinds of thoughts, temporally linear or regular causal, most thoughts which begin with an external association and end with an internal memory. These thoughts follow the grain of external to internal causation, according to the arrow of time. And second, there are external to internal retrocausal thoughts, which go contrary to the arrow of time. In the first kind, the proximate cause and cause in fact are the same. In the second, they are distinct and at opposite ends of the thought chain. It is possible to witness these retrocausal chains because in the second case, the proximate cause is spontaneous, lacking in clear internal causation. Thus, when internal memories or states occur spontaneously, without apparent association, it is possible to identify them as retro-temporally caused, before the anchoring form appears, and follow them down the chain to the source. As said in a previous episode, consciousness is causally invariant and follows the arrow of time despite retrocausality. In this episode, we will be drawing linkages between Freudian concepts of the superego, id and ego to our discussions of consensual and non-consensual realities while building upon the episodes which preceded this. Now to start off, we discussed how when dissonant consensualities interact, the interaction leads to a dialectical deconstruction according to the dialectical gradient of one of the two consensual realities. This process begins with the contextualization of the non-contextual consensual reality and its dissolution into the dissonant consensuality. In other words, through mechanisms of spatial non-consensuality, the consensual reality of one is punctured with the reactive thoughts of the punctured individual being contextually rationalized according to the dissonant consensuality. In other words, the process by which one consensual reality becomes unified with another is through the imposition of spatial dominance, manifesting in the invasion of the body space of the punctured reality through the non-consensual space between the two dissonant consensualities. Now, in the past episode, 
we discussed how this act of puncturing the consensual reality of one of the participants leads to two possibilities. 1. The individual who is contextualized exceeds his or her position to the other, accepting their reality, creating a conjoined consensuality, through expectation matching. The other alternative is consensual multi-contextuality. In this method, the punctured resurrects his or her consensual reality through the application of multiple levels of meaning to the experiences. In effect, rather than accepting the contextualization of the dissonant consensuality, the punctured substitutes his or her own consensuality which is rebirthed through the application or exegesis of the experience within the confines of his or her broader consensuality. It is as if the consensual reality of the punctured becomes nonlinear, in that, it does not flow naturally from one moment to the next, but rather skips a time, during which time the multi-contextuality is substituted for the now extinct consensuality which disintegrated through the contextualization of the dissonant consensual reality according to the dialectical process generated by the convergence of two polar dialectical pairings. To put in simpler language, two people will meet with dialectical worldviews. One is favored by the consensuality of the masses. The other is not. The dialectical process begins upon their meeting, which decontextualizes the one in favor of the contextualization of the other. Later, that consensuality which was dissolved, is resurrected by the actor through multi-contextualization. The esoteric can be understood in the context of Freudian understandings of the superego, as the sublimation of the consciousness of the actor. This act of multi-contextuality, taps into the superego-situated contextuality, the higher throne of consciousness, which provides the archetypal and symbolic framework for the esoteric exegesis of one's experiences. When two dissonant consensualities meet, the sublimation of one is achieved through multi-contextuality. It is as if the ego is sublimated from the moment by the act of intrusion of the one by the other into the superego, where it creates a new consensuality in the moments that follow. Now, this describes one example of the meeting of two dissonant consensualities. The other possibility when two dissonant consensualities meet, is that the ego may descend into the id, rather than ascend to the superego. This occurs when the dissonant consensualities reveal a non-consensual space for action. In this non-consensual space, the dialectical deconstruction is undermined by the rising of the id challenging the dialectical deconstruction of one's dissonant consensuality, re-establishing a dialectical position. Such rising of the id requires a secondary contextualization according to the dialectical effulgence, which is then used to reconstitute a consensual reality through the sublimation of the ego back into the superego. These two paths of dissonant resurrection describe two mechanisms by which the consciousness of the dissonant consensuality is brought back into being through the internal processes of the mind. The mechanisms by which the mind modulates, generates, and attenuates its consensual reality are through the mechanisms generated and preserved in the superego, captured by esoteric contextualization and multi-contextualization of one's experiences in general. It requires a careful balancing of the id with the superego and the gift of sublimation of the ego by the superego. In effect, the esoteric describes the delicate machinery by which this reality is managed internally. Part 5. In Season 13 Episode 4, 
we discuss how the transition from non-consensuality to consensuality, or from consensuality to non-consensuality, provides an opportunity for a retrocausal event. The reason for this, is that time runs distinctly for non-consensual actors, from our consensuality. Now, this occurs, not in an objective sense, but in the sense that our conscious stream of action flows in proximity to theirs, not sharing the same objective reality, but existing in a distinct experience of reality. Such differences in the flow or rate of time permits the creation of the retrocausal. In episode 3 of season 15, we talk about how a P-to-S wave ratio determines when our consensuality expands or contracts. Essentially the point was that excess S waves causes our consensuality to contract into our non-consensual reality, which causes us to take outs from the environment. These outs become necessary due to the increase in adrenaline in the body which promotes a flight or fight response. The adrenaline buildup is mediated by the enteric nervous system as the receiver of P waves and S waves. Thus, our recent episodes discussing examples of retrocausality reveal something important about our consensual and non-consensual reality. In the example given of the driving trip, and seeing the bumper sticker which reads, Ground Zero, the car passing at high rate of speed, by expressing a meaningful communicative action of superiority, imposes deference. That is, they become the tonic and ourselves the dominant. We receive S waves as a result of this conformation, which causes our consensuality to contract. This contraction leads to the substitution of our non-consensuality. The flow of the thought chain from a recent memory of communication with a friend, during which the offhand comment was made about nuclear war, represents the flowing of our consciousness from an internal state of consensuality to one which is non-consensual. Now, we can also observe that the driver in the speeding vehicle is functioning with a higher rate of adrenaline production, maintaining their consensual expectation field despite greater risk. Thus, we can see that the substrate level of adrenaline in one system determines the rate at which we produce S waves. This makes sense, since, higher rates of adrenaline production mirror sympathetic nervous system activation. This flipping of consensuality to non-consensuality mirror the transition from an internal state to one which is initiated by the anchor cause in fact, seeing the image of the bumper sticker on the neighboring vehicle. Since we also know that it is the consensuality which preserves in us a distinct introspective space for contemplation, and that non-consensuality results in the loss of this space, we can see that the retrocausal thought chain represents the penetration of our mind with externalities. In effect, the puncturing of that internal space occurs by the anchor cause in fact, which terminates our internal thought chain which ostensibly began with the proximate cause. This is consistent with my earlier statement that there is no distinction between the substance of thought and materiality. That our reality is oriented around us by our ego, preserved by our consensuality. Thus, retrocausal thoughts represent the collapse of subjectivity, its involution, and substitution of a consensual reality with a non-consensual one. All of this is mediated by the excess of S waves sent by the accelerating vehicle's occupants, mediated by the enteric nervous system, and the intuition of the body and brain. In this episode we will be summarizing the lessons of retrocausality and synthesizing them with our discussions of folds in time. 
If you imagine that time is a linear sequence from point A to point B, retrocausality is the product of an involution of consensuality, a substitution of non-local absolute consensuality, produced through pairing, with local relativistic non-consensuality. Imagine that you are traveling to a location you have never been from point A to point B. Imagine that before going on the trip, you had a conversation with person 1. Imagine that after leaving that person 1, you start your solo driving trip. Now, halfway or roughly halfway, you recall a memory of that conversation, say it was about your sunglasses, which are antiques from the 1960s. This thought, of your sunglasses from the 1960s, progresses into thoughts of a beach, then suntan lotion, then Mexico. It progresses from the particular to the general. Then, as you reach point B, lost in your own thoughts, you suddenly come to your senses. Ahead of you is a billboard on which your eyes are resting at the moment that you return to yourself. In this moment, your thoughts are of suntan lotion, and the billboard is an ad for an all-inclusive vacation in Mexico, with a couple on a beach, sunbathing with sunglasses and lotion beside them on a table. Now, the cause in fact was the billboard. The proximate cause was the thought of your sunglasses roughly halfway between the locations A and B, but your consensuality is present at point A, and non-consensuality is present at point B. The proximate cause of the causal chain is the hinge or the center point of a fold in time. How does this explain it? Because time is folded on the proximate cause, which makes A and B temporally adjacent. What we observe to be retrocausal is in fact causation extending backwards from the proximate cause to the cause in fact, which substitutes non-consensuality for your consensuality. From this we can see that the consensual, non-local, is constantly being replaced, the non-consensual is constantly substituting itself for consensual. The time it takes for this substitution to occur is the correction time, as explained in how to create a glitch in the matrix the complete series. Thus, spatially A and B may not be adjacent, but temporally, they are. In effect, the proximate cause, existing within your consensuality, within the folds created in ordinary time, is a hinge at the very limit of your reality. To visualize this example, draw a line from A to B. Now halfway across the line, write proximate cause above the line. Imagine causation traveling forward in time from A to B. Draw an arrow for causation. Now, fold the paper in half. If you were traveling forward still, and could see both sides of the paper, you would see causation is now traveling backwards from the proximate cause to the cause in fact. But it is also traveling forward to the proximate cause from point A. In effect, these two forms of causation exist in tandem, whenever there is a glitch such as a retrocausal thought chain. The natural substitution of consensuality with non-consensuality occurs whenever we are not directly observing something. As it fades, consensuality involutes. This causes a fold in time, manifesting as bidirectional causality or retro-temporal causality moving forward to be. Thus, we can see how folds in time explain this peculiar form of bidirectional causality through the linear passage through space. Time has its own sequentiality, its own particular attributes, and perhaps time has hinges as well. Finally, 
It is also important to note that consensuality is only non-local when it is involved with a retrocausal chain. The reversal of causality reverts the ordinary architecture of reality. Ordinarily, when causality is forward, consensuality is local and non-consensuality is non-local. This follows since we know that consensuality describes reality as it meets our expectations, and non-consensuality describes reality when it doesn't. In this episode, we will be talking about the significance of the retrocausal thought chain to philosophy and meaning in general. In several past episodes, of the past two seasons, we give examples of a retrocausal thought chain occurring naturally in reality. The essential point was that a retrocausal thought chain separates the cause in fact from the proximate cause, with the proximate cause being an internal state, and the cause in fact being some external form which generates, in a reverse causal fashion, the chain which leads to the proximate cause. Likewise, the proximate cause is a recollection of a past experience. Up until now, we have been talking about causality and the implications for reality from that standpoint. With this episode, I would like to comment on the structural implications of this manifestation. If we take an example of the bare retrocausal chain, what this chain tells us is that the form, that is the physical representation of the bear, externally, is attached or linked causally to the internal chain which leads to the memory as the proximate cause. This rebuts the post-structural critique of structuralism, which suggests that such linking between the sign and signifier does not exist. But paradoxically, the causal chain is retro-temporal, that is, the sign produces the link to the signifier. Now, what is the significance of this? In past episodes, we discussed how there is no true distinction between thought and matter, that is, the world around us is mere representation of the substance of thought, oriented around our egoistic self. This follows from a structuralist view which is that external form can be a cause of a signifier in the mind. But this, it would seem is the proper direction for causality, given that it posits a classical if reversed structuralist view. The ordinary causal chain involves a proximate cause which is also the cause in fact, which means that the post-structuralist critique of structuralism is consistent with what we actually see most of the time. The need for a re-evaluation of structuralism and its integration with post-structuralist ideas, is suggested by the dichotomy between causal and retrocausality. In fact, even if we accept the critique of physicists and philosophers that retrocausality is mere illusion, the byproduct of our imagination and subconscious working together to produce some semblance of meaning to an otherwise inexplicable reality, we cannot deny that experientially, at least for this author, it is truly real and must therefore be incorporated into a fulsome understanding of what is real in a subjective sense. In effect, what I am saying is that if retrocausality is real for this author, then so too is their credence to a structuralist view of reality further to the continued link between the signifier and the signified. One cannot get past structuralism if retrocausality is true phenomenologically, whether or not it is true objectively. What this also tells us is that the involution of consensuality into non-consensuality generates the structuralist retrocausal link between signifier and signified. This involution is not a natural consequence of regularly causal action and thought, but rather a unique subspecies of thought. That's the end of the podcast for today.
If you enjoyed it please like, comment and subscribe.